Um, my ideas, I'd say they come from anywhere and everywhere. What's a good idea, what's a bad idea? It's really hard to say, right? I mean, you got to give both a shot. Welcome to the Idea Generation Podcast, a show about creative entrepreneurship. My name is Noah Callahan-Bever, and each week I'll be speaking with some of the most innovative ideators in culture and trying to figure out how they make their creative decisions. This week, I'm talking to graffiti god and street art pioneer Futura about how the graph movement of the 70s and 80s turned into big business in the 2000s and how he navigated this evolving landscape. This podcast is brought to you by the good people at Shopify. Feeling that entrepreneurial itch? Turn your passion into a business with Shopify. They've got everything you need to start, run, or grow your business. Check out shopify.com idea to learn more. In 1970, graffiti emerged as a new art movement on the streets of New York City. What started with artists painting their names on local walls soon migrated to the subway system, where the work could be broadcast citywide. Inspired by this burgeoning scene, a 14-year-old high school student named Leonard McGurr invented a new moniker for himself, Futura 2000. Over the following half-century, McGurr's signature style would grow into a brand and a business. But first, McGurr had to grapple with his own issues of identity. Tell me about your household growing up and what sort of exposure you had to the creative arts. Well, not much in the world of like creative arts, that's for sure. You know, I grew up so far from what my life has become. It's amazing to, you know, think of the turnaround, I guess, from where I started and what I was about. I mean, I'm a only child, uh, so I grew up in the city you know, by myself, pretty much my mom was a housewife, uh, live at home, you know, work at home, whatever mom, like didn't have a job. So I was around my mom a lot and was kind of, you know, an extension of her doing chores and stuff. So, you know, I mean, I'm nothing creative growing up. You know, I, I like visual, you know, I was visually stimulated, but I wasn't like, didn't go to school for art, didn't know really anything about art history, you know, went to museums and stuff on class trips, but personally wasn't, was more like, oh, I'm going to be a fireman, you know, classic civil servant, like follow in the footsteps of my dad, kind of, you know, just pretty humble ambitions. Your father worked for the city? Yeah, I mean, well, he was a, he actually worked for the Colgate-Palmolive company, you know, it was some kind of, I don't know. I mean, I really never actually knew what my dad did. So, but uh, yeah, just kind of sketchy upbringing, you know, but the timing of my story is interesting. And, you know, how like I just grew up around this other bigger movement around me that I just got connected to. You know. Yeah. Tell me about that. You know, you're a teenager walking around and people are starting to write their names yeah. on the walls. What was it about that that stimulated you and drew you to it? Well, it's mostly like, I mean, you know, we're just on the heels of uh, celebrating what could be a 50-year anniversary for graffiti in New York, you know, dating back to 69. So at that time, I'm 14, I'm in high school, you know, I'm seeing the writing on the wall from earliest days of Taki and Joe and Snake and whoever was scribbling uh, names and numbers. And at the time, you know, we're, we're in the Vietnam War. There's, um, you know, just a lot of stuff going on, uh, you know, civil rights. Like, it was just a lot. It was a moment in American history as well. There was a lot going on uh, between, once again, you know, like the war, politics, and people's civil liberties. And, and you know, so it was also a time of, like, questioning authority and, wanting to be a bit rebellious. And I saw all of that as a perfect storm to step out of my, you know, I had like, I don't want to say identity crisis, but the graffiti movement and creating this identity to write my name and hide behind an anonymous alias, it was perfect because, you know, it, it gave me an identity and I wanted to join into this bigger picture, which was ultimately what would become like the family. I didn't really have the brothers, and some sisters I never had. Not just the homies in the hood, but like this was deeper. Like writing graffiti 
was even beyond your block. And, you know, it was something where you were doing like elsewhere and it was exciting. And, and that's probably what drew me to it, you know? And I also, once again, was trying to express myself like, you know, in this world I found myself in, it's like, yeah, I exist too. Like I'm someone. And, you know, once again, I couldn't have ever calculated how it all happened, but that's all I wanted to do. I just wanted to join that community and, you know, had a good handwriting, you know, whatever, everything seemed to make sense at the time. And, and I did like graphic art, like graphics. I was really into actually, you know, uh, logos and stuff like that. I was very much driven by that because advertising was very powerful, whether it was in the subway or on television, you know, and I come from an era of like three stations, you know, four maybe with, you know, PBS or something, you know, like, but really limited broadcasting and information was channeled through those sort of couple of windows and you just got, you know, overkill with the same products all the time. But it was, I always saw it in early days, like products where the, you know, it's commercialism was a really big thing, pushing products on people. And my friend was like, yeah, but graffiti's like advertising. It's like, yeah, look, we're promoting ourselves, but we don't have a product. We have an identity and all these kind of things. So early on, I, I saw something cool about being a graffiti writer, you know, and, and then I just started writing on stuff and then the trains and, you know, then I just got taken by the, by the system in a way, and, and, and all my peers and contemporaries. What were the issues of identity that you felt like you and, and your cohort were sort of peeling apart? Yeah, so I'm a only child, but I'm also, uh, I have a black mother, I have a white father, and then it, they're not my biologicals. And then I find out they're not my biologicals when I'm 15, and then I'm like, whoa, okay. So added to what we've already discussed, that's really the impetus. That's really the catalyst to like, all right, you don't even know who the fuck you are, but your future are 2000. Moving forward, your future are 2000. And then nothing can be denied. You know, there won't be any, no, 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 no. There's, you know, there's no skeleton in the closet. None. And then I didn't even, you know, personally, you know, the type of guy I am, I guess it's like, that wasn't going to, you know, defy me or, you know, uh, describe me or determine who I was. Just this, because I also felt like, well, I came from these very loving folks who I'd only known since birth. So I don't know how, you know, I, I, I certainly don't come from an agency or a home. I don't know what deal was done on a November night in 1955. I have no clue, but I'm just grateful to be, you know, obviously I'm grateful to be here. And, and I figured that out when I got the news from my mother who was crying, oh, baby, you know, you're, you're dad, you don't want me to know. And, you know, it's classic. It's a classic. And I just said, okay, no problem. And then meanwhile, I had the graffiti thing to kind of go use as some type of thing to get me back on my feet. And then ultimately, I even knew as a kid, well, one day I'll have a family and they'll know who their father and my, you know what I mean? I'll make that right. And so that's really why I got into graffiti, you know. And Mark comes from a broken home. Uh, Pops left when he was a kid. So it's like single mom with a younger brother who was mentally, you know, uh, had been institutionalized as a young child, you know, quite ill, uh, in and out of like the hospital, living in a welfare hotel, you know, so his upbringing was not good. Mine was just a little bit above that poverty level because it's like, well, at least I had a, a mom and a dad and my mom had my dad out there killing it just to support us to not be on the lowest tier. And so I just grew up around, you know, pretty much not a whole lot and never really expected, you know what I mean? It just was going to work hard for whatever I was going to get. Do you recall the moment that the idea of Futura 2000 popped into your head? Sure, because my friend and I, Mark Andre Edmonds, also known as Ali, the founder of like Zoo York as a, as a name, if you will, you know, he's the one that made Zoo York magazine. That was a kind of a political statement against what was happening, not just in America, but globally. And, you know, real smart kid, Mark, rest in peace, dear friend, and super part of my early days of getting into graffiti and, you know, just, um, you know, <laughs> Kano, great. Um, just kind of, once again, like pursuing this, this, this thing of, you know, it was always about our self-expression. But I think at the time, even early days of graffiti, we saw the transition of it into something more creative 
even beyond what we were doing, like tagging up. But yeah, he and I sat there in, in like his apartment and and I played with, I thought of Africa One for some reason. I don't know, like I I had the name Africa One. I had the name Wink One, like wink, winking your eye. Um, and and I don't know, Futura was just it. You know, it was, it was, a, it was a car. It was a typeface. It was a blender. It was a sewing machine. You know, there were Futuras out there that I had seen the name before. And 2000 was a direct ripoff of 2001 A Space Odyssey, which I said is like the kind of movie that I saw it at the time. And I was like, wow, what kind of fantasy is this? It was amazing. I didn't really understand the ending, the baby. You know, the whole thing, it just blew my mind. And then I discovered Kubrick. I just kind of became a Kubrick guy. And then film really was a major influencer, I think, of my thoughts and my ideas. You know, I read a bit, but I was more of a film guy because even at that time in the mid-70s to early, you know, whatever, 70s, film was still new. And, you know, there was just great cinema, you know, uh, whether it was Scorsese or Stanley. You know, these guys were just, I really loved film. And so I was went from a television set to the big screen and, you know, and that happened actually when I was a kid, my, my boy's parents ran a movie theater in the city and I used to always go to movies. So, but yeah, the, the graffiti thing, I, I really felt like once I saw the name Futura with the arrows, like the way I had created the identity, the, the logo, right? Because what we realized happened was, yeah, you were inspired by advertising maybe, or you saw it. Same way Keith Haring later was drawing in the subway stations on the black advertising paper. That was the the blank area to put the advertising, you know, to wheat paste up the ads. He saw the black things. It was like, whoa, it's like chalkboard. It's like, this is amazing. And 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 even like from any child's point of view, the, the, the chalkboard. You know, at one point when I was a kid, it was black. It became green. It changed the colors. But that black chalkboard, that's like the roots of it all, you know, and like whatever, penmanship, writing, any anything, lessons, I, I don't know, you know. So Keith's adaptation of the public ad space added to what we had already considered like, yeah, this is kind of like advertising. And then cut to the future, cut to yesterday, you know, FL, you know, Tees, Uniqlo, whatever, FL, Futura Signature, it's a brand, it's a logo. You know, I didn't even realize it's kind of being ahead of your time in a sense of, come on, what, what is everyone's identity? You know, what's your name called? It's a tag, T-A-G. I mean, look how that works has been appropriated through not just social media, but ultimately like when the, when the web came up and running, you know, 20 something, 25 years ago, items were tagged, you know, and all this kind of stuff. So it's all about identity still. It's just about, you know, what are you calling yourself kind of thing? And you know, what are you, who are you? While reconciling his issues of identity, McGurr found solace in the advent and broadcasting of his nom de plume, Futura. However, just as he embraced this new outlet of expression, a freak accident left one of his friends badly injured and his life on a permanently altered course. In 1973, after we had discovered who we were, myself and Mark, and and Mark and I are painting a train one night, in September of 1973, a fire breaks out and he's badly burned. And as a result of that fire, uh, it's a police investigation. There's a whole story that's been documented in the New York Times, you know, um, that, that incident. And as a result of that incident with Mark, and we're now 17, September of 73, I would have been 17 years old. He would have been 16. Here we are in this moment in New York City's subway tunnel. And as a result of that, uh, three, four months later, because he was very badly burned and, you know, I really thought the worst and, and, and I wind up going into the military. So, so initially my graffiti period was quite short-lived, a total failure, okay? And now here I am kind of escaping from New York and my injured friend, to kind of find my life and, you know, whatever. I'm curious about the decision to go into the Navy, you know? Yeah. I mean, obviously you had been through a trauma, but it, I can't think of something more diametrically opposed to no, running no, around, No, 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 of course, and, 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 and I was going against what was the societal norm, which was anti-government, anti-war, 
my thing was I really didn't have a choice because based with the circumstances of the article in the Times, uh, I was kind of implicated in the fire. Almost, uh, I mean, literally, there, I mean, you know, this is all uh, can, be, can be seen. It's, it's all public uh, you know, information. But the story details Mark's accident and burning in this, you know, moment of trying to write graffiti on a train, accompanied by his friend, who went unnamed. That was me. And there was three words in the story. The, the, it's a metropolitan section of the New York Times. So the New York Times have your global thing, and then the insert fold is the local one, metro. Subway art. Subway, let me get this right. Subway artist pleads from hospital bed, stop the spraying. That, 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 that's like burned in my head forever. Michael Kaufman is the writer. But the three words in a, in a subheading of one of the paragraphs says, abandon in pain. Okay? So, once again, I'm 17. This is maybe 10 days after the incident. Mark's recovering in the hospital. I went to see him. I couldn't see him. He was bandaged and, you know, being recovering from facial and, and, and uh, hand burns because the pain exploded. It was kind of a little bit gruesome. But, I mean, in the end, he recovered. He was fine, actually. But the trauma and the moment and the incident and the subsequent investigation, because what happened was we left a burning, <laughs> like, kind of subway. You know, we left an incident in a New York City subway tunnel. We ran out of there and get him to the hospital on the way to the hospital, I'm like, okay, dude, we were painting in the basement, unventilated, that the shit exploded. That's our alibi. You know, because, I mean, I'm 17, but, you know, I'm a street kid. I, you know, I'm trying to figure out, like, how to not get busted, right? The whole thing. So we get to the hospital. Yeah, we, he's fine. I run to Mom Dukes. I get his mom. Boom. This one happened. Oh, my God, Cheryl. Okay, he's fine. He's fine. He's burned. He's fine. Okay, boom. Uh, a week later... You know, I'm like, well, where are the cops? Because if I were the police, you know, New York Transit, hey, we have an incident. Uh, let's do a follow-up investigation. Oh, kids painting. Oh, wow, there was a fire. Local hospitals, any burn victim, right? Yeah. Classic. Uh, yeah, we got a kid. Done. So it took about a week for, you know, the police to show up to my door, but they did. And then when they did, they don't have me red-handed. They're not really there to bust me. They just want to tie up loose ends. And, and that was a few days of being with the New York City Transit Police Department. Not the famous Hickey and Ski, because there's a couple of famous cops of that era. But other detectives who work graffiti squad, you know, because New York City had a graffiti squad even back in the early 70s. This is 73. Um, and getting me to kind of not drop a dime on people, but like, do you know about this person? I was like, no, no, I, I don't know him or I don't, know, I don't know who that is. And then like kind of trying to get me to, can you get your friends to not do this? It's obviously looks like it almost killed your friend. I'm like, guys, I'm with you. And oh, by the way, because I didn't know what was going to happen. I didn't know like, are they really going to arrest me? And sort of as a mea culpa, hey guys, I fucked up. And you know what? I've got to get my life together and I'm going to go in the military. And only to four years later, come back to New York. And now here's Mark recovered and starting Soul Artist again, which we had formed up prior. And now we've got a studio or a squat in the Upper West Side on 109th and Columbus Avenue. Uh, and here's Hayes and here's Zephyr. And here, you know, so it was the beginning of like 78, 79. And here comes the 80s. And my reconnection, in fact, with this whole graffiti story, which had blossomed during my time of being away with the likes of Dondi and Lee and Scene and, you know, Crash and Days and, and all the artists of the 70s that Henry Chalfant basically documented, uh, like the, the real golden era and Lee Quinones, of course, probably the most notable of, of everyone. So, and... You know, I, I mentioned Dondi, of course, rest in peace. And Dondi, as a result of this sort of my reconnection to the moment in 79, became one of my best friends along with Zephyr. And, and then this is the moment in which now we've kind of all gotten back together and looking at 
graffiti and on trains as a kind of maybe, maybe it's over. And maybe now this is a moment to surface with some, you know, the, the whole beginning of what would be alternative spaces, exhibitions, blah, 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 and quote unquote galleries, uh, art world-ish. Had you connected with all of those people in that 71 to 74 no, period? No, because I'm still before their time. You okay. know, like that that first incubated. It's, it's just you and Mark. It's just me and Mark and, and the, you know, like the Cliff 159s of the world, the Moseses, the Patches, the, uh, you know, I mean, but, but then again, we were kind of toys, okay, in, in, in the real world of graffiti. I mean, we were nobodies. And this is... Phase two is phase two is is going to become a god, just about to become a god. Okay, because the initial New York Magazine article written about the UGA, and so the UGA is the first group to arrive and be, you know, like oh my god, formidable in the sense of like their, you know, their exposure was enormous. Because it wasn't like graffiti was being glorified, but they were talking about graffiti in a sense of like, wow, look at these kids, blah, blah, blah. Phase two, stay high. Uh, Miko, Stitch, Snake, all of the uh, Riff 170, all of the UGA crew were highly respected and, and we were in awe of them. And I was actually a little bit of like a UGA stalker because they probably formed up in 72 and we heard about them. But they got published in a magazine, and that changes the game, you know. And this is almost 50 years. You know, you see something in a magazine like, oh, my God. And it's a reputable one. It's not some, like, you know, like uh, later there would be fanzines and stuff like that. No, this is legit. And it just made us think, like, wow. You know, like, now, once again, I didn't know the, what the future of this renegade activity was going to be. But I did think it was, like, like you know, it was blossoming or whatever was happening in those early days. And it was very unfortunate what happened with me and Mark. But that small incident, no matter how tragic, didn't stop the force of the whole thing from kind of, you know, all those rolling trains that got hit and painted and buffed and repainted and rebuffed and repainted. You know, it's just a, it's a good, probably almost, you know, by 82, three, it was really starting to get like, you know, they were shutting it off. And it's crazy because they're painting trains now. There's yeah. trains rolling in New York now. It's like, oh, my God, what? But just to say that, like, the city was closing, you know, making it much more difficult for people to access the yards and, or the, the layups or wherever they were being hit. In, in that initial sort of phase, like, you know, there's with... Graffiti, there's sort of the, the game of graffiti and the, yep. the competitive element, and then there's the art sure. part. In what proportions were you as a 15, 16 year old? Not the art. It was simply because, I mean, I didn't, I mean, I thought my tag looked cool because it's also about like visual recognition, right? I mean, you know, you could look at a wall and you could see a bunch of names. And, you know, I mean, if you, to the untrained eye, you probably couldn't even translate some of those names. To the trained eye, you've got it all there. You see it all. You're like, oh, yeah, this guy, that guy. Oh, that's an M, you know, whatever. I mean, you try your best. Now, of course, I look at some tags sometimes. I'm like, whoa, what? wow, what is that? But just to say style, phase two, who was the initial kind of like, you know, the style master. Um, you know, it was, had to be something beautiful about the flow. So the style was very important. And I did like the way my tag looked. So then it's just about, okay, well, look at, look at everything else. And then you're probably going to notice my thing. And Getting noticed meant also, like, where did you put your tag? You know what I mean? So it's, it's, it's not quantity, it's quality. And then it's about placement, obviously, too. But, yeah, I mean, I was pretty obsessed with doing it, but I wasn't artistic about it. I mean, I was just, you know, once again, I didn't know about art. I knew about graphics. I was comparing it in my head at the time, the early days, you know, my tag, putting it up on the wall, looking at it, like, oh, wow. It was more like graphics in a way. The Night of the Fire, I mean, I was doing a Futura uh, block, you know, block letters, like really primitive pieces, which was the second movement from tagging. You know, it was tagging, spray can. Then it was like, okay, now let's go on the outside. We'll do like bigger letters, still very primitive. You know, no one was really coming in with all the, you know, like it wasn't all flowy yet. It was pretty, and and that's just the evolution of knowledge, you know, about how to use your equipment, you know, because even all of that was new for everyone. and. And then you're looking at someone else's work, and you know that's where the movement has completely educated itself. 
about what artists are doing even today. You know, the early days before the Navy was once again like a kind of, everybody was rudimentary things and people just picking up these materials and moving really ultimately to spray can. You know, it was moving, everything, everyone was moving to the spray can. And, um, you know, till this day, I mean, you go to Europe, you see it a lot more, I guess, you know, where people are active, tagging. But I mean, that, that fundamental urge to express yourself on some level, the urban level, or you live in the sticks and it's on the side of an electrical box, you know, like somewhere someone's tagging, you know, to be like, yo, <laughs> I'm, I'm here, I'm me. Now back in the States, Futura reconnected with a graffiti scene that had rapidly evolved in his absence. While the art world was starting to discover the underground movement, Futura found himself playing catch-up. Thankfully, an opportunity to open a workshop with like-minded artists would give him the tools that he needed to excel. So you get home from the Navy, and the sort of level of ambition of graffiti writers and the entire genre have evolved very, very rapidly while you're gone. Um, how did you, how quickly did you acclimate to this new level of, you know, wild style and all of the things that were going on? Yeah, yeah, of course. So when I came back and I, you know, formed up with Mark again and we were looking at, you know, a continuation of almost where we left off, right? You know, like none of this last four or five years even happened. We're back writing graffiti. It was a bit of a learning curve for me just to find out who all was who now and like what work was being done. And it wasn't like we had a photographic catalog to see stuff yet. You know, it was still early before things were really published. But just a good year uh, spent watching trains, riding around, looking, going to meet people. And really, I got to say, it was my friendship with Zephyr, who was quite prolific at that moment in the city, you know, maybe king of New York on a level that you could call yourself a king, meaning like your work was everywhere and, you know, you were all over. So I had to learn a lot and finding out who Lee was, who Steen was, you know, who Crash Days and, and, and all the modern day writers were. And also befriending Dandi helped a lot, you know. But really the turning point is a, a thing called SE Studios in 1980. This was a, a workshop that we had for a two-month period in the summer of 80, where the plan from a Mr. S's was to kind of do what had been done two times before with UGA, where they try to get some of you guys' work on can Let's get the work on canvas. The UGA in the 70s had a show at the Razor Gallery in Soho, once again, like I said, they were just before their time. It didn't really catch fire. In the mid-70s, while I was in the Navy, maybe 77, there's an organization called NOGA, Nation of Graffiti Artists, that also tried to make inroads into hay exhibitions and stuff. It still didn't work. S's proposed to myself and Zephyr that we would run a workshop for a two-month period in which he would fund it and um, equip it with all the materials we needed, canvases, spray paint, gesso, stretchers, everything you would need to make multiple stretchers and canvases for artists to come in and paint. And I guess we made about 40, 42 canvases. And then we invited that many artists in over that two-month period. We were now, you know, and I was now, like I said, like really trying to figure out what to do creatively. I hadn't done the brake car yet. I hadn't really done any graffiti yet other than like, reintroduction of a Futura 2000 tag, which I was still going by, uh, that wasn't doing the crazy one from the early days. Uh, my arrow signature was a bit more modernized, but I wasn't still artistic yet. I was just simply a graffiti writer. So for two months while running the studio, and like I was there every morning to have it open, you know, it was, it took about two weeks for it to catch fire. Like we were there, but once people knew we were there, we were getting people coming by every day, wanting to paint some, we wanted to paint some, we didn't. In the end, like I said, we got about 40 artists. S's idea was, hey guys, let's get everything done here. 
would you be willing to volunteer a painting to this collection that we're going to mothball and we won't look at for 10 years, 20 years minimum? And can you imagine in year 2000, Futura, we bring this collection out and let everyone see what you guys did back then? You know, it was a, it was a really... It, it wasn't done for, you know, malicious purposes and some sort of like, yo, I'm going to flip all that and make money. No, I mean, it was pretty honorable. The only thing we now, Andy, Zephyr, and myself kind of came to realize over the you know, subsequent years is that we could have done a better deal to make arrangements maybe for the artists who really, I mean, didn't get anything out of it and are kind of cut out of whatever is now the situation of the work. Well, this was also... To be fair to you guys, you had never really commercialized your work no. prior to this. So no. I mean, we had never, no one even had a show yet. I mean, Lee's having a show in Rome, but none of us had ever shown anywhere, technically, right? The point is, after that two-month period, man, I learned a lot about technical ability, how all these different kids painted. I saw people painting backwards, you know, like doing the outline first, and then, you know, like I, I saw all types of people painting, which was really... That was the, the goldmine, you know, event for me. Because normally everyone's just there on the day they're there, they come, they paint, they leave. I'm there every day, I've seen everyone come and paint. And so I really got, you know, like, I don't know, like a PhD in a, in a, in a truncated moment, right? You know, I get to learn from all these guys and like, oh my God, look how, look how he's fading it. Look how he's doing this and that. After that, uh, I went and did the brake train. Where were you? In the sort of Still realm. a toy. Okay. <laughs> Still a toy, even more so, because I got no... Because now you're out of the mix. I got out of the mix. I mean, I got nothing. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm uh, you know, oh, wow, Futura, yo, with the arrow. Yeah, I remember your tag or whatever. Yeah, yeah my brother, knows, you know, whatever. But it was not anything relevant. And even when I put up the brake car, you know, I was pretty sure, like, I don't really want to do, the, you know, this is not really what I want to do. But it was almost like, because by then, the whole car, the top-to-bottom full wagon, if you will, had become the gold standard. And unless you want to do multiple cars, you know, you're really, you're greedy. You know, you just want it more and more and more. But, I mean, you know, one New York City subway car, one, one wagon, I mean, that's pretty that's dope. a lot of real estate. Yeah. And you're talking about, like, rolling thunder. You know, it's like this, this is a, you know, I said earlier, you know, you catch a photo of it running through the Bronx somewhere, as Martha did of that train. It's like a wild animal in the jungle. And it's also like one wagon of 7,000 others. And this is New York. This ain't like UK or any other kind of subway system where we close at midnight. You know, this thing is running all the time, seven days a week, 365. So that kind of idea, even today, of having art running in a public venue. You know, forget a wall. Like, walls. Walls are boring by comparison. And the beauty of that time was well, we just took it. So the, the possibility of what the new decade was going to be was quite exciting. And later in 1980, we exhibit at uh, Fashion Moda in the Bronx in a show that Crash curates called Graffiti Art Success. And now that's the first moment where I'm on exhibit in a gallery space and my painting, a uh, small square painting, like maybe 20 foot, uh, sorry, 24 inches, two foot square, sold for like $500, of which I was told I'm going to get half. And I was like, wow, I just made 250 for that? Like, it's crazy. You know, like, like oh, that, that's not bad, you know? And, and, and that was my first sale was from that show. You start having your work in shows and things yeah. start selling it, and all of a sudden there becomes this real balloon in this, the entire scene. Everything, it's becoming a zeitgeist movement, right? Yeah. Could you feel that as a kid in the middle of it? No, because I, I, you know, I don't know why I never, I mean, I've always had faith in myself, but not others. So I was always like, nah, this is not gonna, this is not gonna last. And I always get to these moments where I think, well, that's it, we've, we've, we did it. You know, we, we, we peaked, it happened you know, or, or something. But no, I mean, I never saw, let's say, like, you know, the, the, that clash moment. And then the, this other kind of spinoff for me, uh, which would finally get me into Europe. And then the rap tour of 1982, which is also quite powerful, because now I'm not representing graffiti really anymore, although I am one element. 
I'm now representing this new movement called hip hop culture with break dancers and b-boys and girls jumping rope and MCs and guys on a, DJs on turntables. And that whole kind of traveling circus moment that we had in 82 gave us even another push because now beyond a one aspect of our culture, hey, we paint on trains, we, we work with spray cans and, and markers. No, now we have music and we have a kind of fashion. And, you know, there's a whole scene behind this. It's a bit broader. Have you ever had a big idea but lacked the tools to implement it? Look no further than Shopify. Shopify is the brand that powers all your favorite clothing, beauty, and sneaker brands and offers the best-in-class commerce tools to allow you to sell online, in person, and on all major social platforms. Shopify fuels millions of entrepreneurs and turns ambition into action. Check out shopify.com idea to learn more. Now back to the story. As hip-hop culture pervaded the mainstream, Futura's star would continue to rise. However, it was actually his work with the hugely popular British rock band The Clash that would catapult him to the spotlight. An appearance in their music video for Radio Clash and a live painting gig on their international tour would transform his career. Still, the sensitive artist retained an ominous sense of imposter syndrome. So you go to a show at Bonds. They're doing several nights there. Yeah. Uh, prior to that, I get a call from a promoter of Bonds, like maybe the club promoter or someone associated with the with the venue, Bonds International. Hey, the Clash are coming to town. You ever heard of the Clash? They're like a rock group from uh, London and blah blah blah. I was like, mm, London calling. Like I, I, I had some something. He's like, yeah, yeah, those guys. I was like, oh yeah, what is that? Like punk music, or whatever. He's like, yeah, they're coming to town. Can you paint a banner for them? So I was like, oh, wow, okay. Yeah, I guess I could do that. So me, Zephyr, and my friend Kylie, my art student kid, uh, we all painted this huge fabric, textile, whatever, just a cloth banner that we had to physically paint in, a, in Riverside Park in the city on a basketball court. It was quite large, and we needed an area space, and, you know, we were going to do it. So we did it out in, in, in nature, you know, like on a basketball court. Um, Anyway, we painted this banner, we delivered it to the venue, we give it to them. Uh, the Clash are playing supposedly five nights. They overbooked, they wound up playing 10 to 12 nights. All their opening acts were New York City rap acts at the time, like Cold Crush Brothers, Treacherous Three, Double Trouble, uh, Flash, perhaps, like a bunch of really primitive early, early days New York City rappers. So when they arrive, they found out that I had painted this banner for them. And I got to befriend uh, the manager and then Don. Long story short, I was a location scout for them during their time in New York. In addition, they were like, hey, uh, we're going to make a video, Radio Clash video. Would you want to be in it? And I'm in the Radio Clash video, like, spray painting lyrics. And, and actually, at the end of the Radio Clash video, you see the banner that, that's at the venue. In oh, the Bronx. original, okay. The actual banner. Later, after the series of shows, they said, hey, would you like to come with us to the UK? We're going to be touring in London and uh, in France, and we can have you on stage painting and stuff. And I was like, wow, I'd, I'd love to do that. So that was really my breakout, you know, moment in my career, and that was quite amazing for me because subway art and everything is being put together and stuff. So it was a really, like, 81 is a super great time because it's when everything was kind of really being made. And, and I'm coming back now from this Clash experience, which was quite helpful because previous to that, like, yeah, I was Futura, but now I'm, oh, wow, that's Futura. He's on tour with the Clash. And so it opened a lot of doors for me. In 81, 82, you start exhibiting work and selling stuff. You yeah. go on tour with The Clash eventually. Yes. Um, and then this tour through France. Yep. At the time, are you thinking about this as a real occupation, art as, as a means to provide for yourself? Yes and no. I mean, I, I thought it was possible. Like I said, I mean, you know, there was that, that initial sale, right? Mm -hmm. You know, where I... I got my 250. And then, you know, obviously I was being paid, uh, you know, for example, like uh, when I was on tour with The Clash, I was being paid. And 
you know, despite my popularity and, and activity, I wasn't really making money per se. And I, and I wasn't sure that I could make money doing this. You know, I was still really, I don't want to say lost. I wasn't lost, but, you know, I was still waiting for, I don't know, you know, something to happen for me. But I wasn't feeling secure economically, you know, even when all that stuff was happening. Although on the rap tour, I met the woman who, be, who would become my wife and the mother of my kids. Even though I was still trying to like quasi be an artist and you know, whatever popped up I might you know, get involved in. But someone's like, yo, you can make $100 as a messenger. I was like, get out of here, riding a bike around? They're like, yeah, you deliver packages and stuff. So 86, to support my family, I was like, okay, I'm just gonna become a messenger. Had a, had a fun time doing it. Every now and then dipped in and out of being Futura in the other realm. But it wasn't until I got hurt, then I realized like the more the mortality, you know, of it all. I went from a rider, I went from a really good rider to like a dispatcher. Now I'm now I'm in the office giving work to other riders because I ain't got a cast on. And I'm like, you know what? I'm done. I can't do this. I'm not gonna, you know, am I really an artist? All of this. You know, I got a kid now. Tell me about that. Yeah. Sorry. Mm. Just the internal struggle with the insecurity and like the validation it's and then lack thereof. It's yeah, tell and it must be real for kids today. It was real for me. And I was like 29, 30 already, you know, because it's kind of like, well, I felt like I lost a lot of time pursuing this whole thing that was happening. That was a bit of a flash in a pan, you know, that my whole presence, everything, break car, who, you know, who cared about any of that, really? You know, like at this point in my life, like none of it matters. I was like, you know what? This is your life, dude. You know, think about it. I even thought about maybe going back in the military. Wow. Yeah. And you're 32, and I'm 31. 30 now. You know, it's 1985. Uh, I would have been 30 in 85. So all these things are happening. But like being an artist and still pursuing any of this shit was not even a, a glimmer of hope. Here comes a French dealer named Philippe Briet. He's got a gallery. And my guy, P, uh, Philippe, says to me, yeah, this is a place. Maybe you can be working there. I know it's like Basquiat. I was like, oh, dude, that'd be amazing. I was just so grateful. Like somebody wanted me to work and was interested in my work. Because even though I was working at the post, I was like, well, this is perfect. I have a real job. Yeah, I'm getting a paycheck. I have benefits. I have, you know, I have everything I want as far as security at the moment. I'm not making a lot of money, but I have a job. And I can moonlight all this other stuff and see, oh, somebody wants a painting? Yeah, I can make you paintings. So I started working with Philippe and then he offered me a show. And then from that show, I got connected to Anya's B and Anya's B is really my savior, and this is, would be now 88, 89, where she says to me, okay, I'd like to get you a studio. Because she said, well, where are you working? I said, like, oh, you know, I'm here in the gallery. And she said, oh, no, you need your own space to work. You should be working. So she was very encouraging and very supportive and basically said to me, okay, look, get a studio, which I got, 500 a month. That's 6K a year. She said, okay. She paid two years in advance. So now I have a studio. She's like, okay, at the end of the first year, I'll come back and see how you're doing. Just let me be the first buyer after you've worked and let's see what you have. And so that's really what got me back because I only in 2018, 20 years later, did I lose that space finally. And now we're at the 90s and somebody said, well, fuck it, you want to make T-shirts? Yeah, so, so how do you move from, you've, you've been doing this fine art, and now yeah. Agnes creates this opportunity for you yeah. to continue your work. Sure. But concurrently, you end up linking with Stash and yes. creating GFS. Absolutely. And along the way, one of the most iconic t-shirts in hip-hop history. Sadly, we ripped it off, and then we got permission. Yeah, I mean... So you got the Philly, did, yeah. The yeah, Philly, the Philly Blunts, Blunt. you licensed the... Yeah, what happened was we... We did the show. It was Stash's brainchild as far as like, okay, let's just do Philly Blunt, you know, and Ad Rock or someone from the Beasties got it. They got on MTV. They got visibility of it. And then we got a letter from the company, but it turns out like to have a Tampa company in Florida, the, the parent group for Philly Blunt, the child, like the kid of the owner saw it. We thought this was a cease and desist. It turned out, no, they were trying to contact us to do it officially. And that's when we put these little, the label around the cigar, that paper paper roll, we, we, we put that on the sleeve or something like officially licensed. But yeah, I mean, 
But the problem was we were in a moment where everybody was bootlegging it. And then the comp- that kind of killed the company, actually. You How? Know? Well, because we were only the Philly Blunt guys. And no one cared about it. You know what I mean? It was one of those things where we created something that was like overshadowed the other stuff. We were really trying to present like that was a fluke. And so when the T-shirt thing came about, it was like, wow, okay. You know, I was like, what, like Stussy? You know, like, and then they were like, yeah. And then, you know, somebody was like, yeah, we can do subway graphics. So the transition to doing that seemed fine. The on yes thing was up and running. I did have the studio. I could paint. But I haven't met James Lavelle yet for till like 92. I would meet James in Berlin. Thanks to Agnes B. underwriting his studio space and his era-defining Philly Blunt's t-shirt, by the early 90s, Futura had begun to transcend the graffiti scene that birthed him. But it wasn't until later that decade, when Moax Records founder James Lavelle tapped him to design the label's album covers and branding, which incorporated his iconic Point Man design, that his work would find a new, rabid audience. There was a messenger championship in Berlin. This is in 92. And I think now they've had... International messengers International messengers. The very first one, competing as messengers. They make you go out on routes and pick up something from point A, deliver to point B, change a flat tire, go here. You know, they, they make you pretend like you're doing your job and it's a race. And at that event, we had made a Philly Blunt cycling jersey. And so we had a few of those that we were offering at this event. And we had some of our teas and other shit. And I was there because I was competing in it. And that's where I met James. James hits me, Lavelle, on some, and he's a young kid, early 20s, got a company he told me called Moax. He's doing this label. He's like, man, I, I've seen paintings of yours from 10 years ago. That was amazing, the stuff you were doing back then. And man, I would love to get your artwork on some of my records I'm doing, it's kind of trip hop, whatever. And that's how me and James came to be. You've gone from being an outsider artist to touring the Clash and and really being at the epicenter of culture and media to now again being on the periphery, but finding new and different satisfaction in the output. Yeah. Was it humbling for you or how did you sort of navigate that well you know it's always been humbling and even just looking at our conversation you can see it's been uh it's been a roller coaster it certainly has right because it's been up it's down it's up it's down and even at the time when i meet james yeah it's relatively down on the art side of things it's very positive on the other side of things right the the clothing companies the, the graphic companies things we were doing in that way but what's also clear is that the gallery thing, it's, it's still not syncing up. You know what I mean? It is something not there. And it's obviously like my personal choice. And I'm not just trying to be represented by a gallery. Right after the James thing happened, and I saw the results of that, which is now young kids, mostly Brits, were discovering my work. And then specifically, that's really when the point man is born, because ultimately the main logo for the Moax group was the two point man figures coming out of the triangle and that establishes then you know the identity of that character but beyond that guy or them and just looking at the covers for shadow and crush and in that way i'm very grateful how they approached it all and presented it all and ultimately turned me on a whole new bunch of people all of that kind of visionary stuff that james was doing and indirectly connecting me with Tokyo. Can we talk about Point Man for a second? When you created him, did you know instantly how dynamic people were going to find this? No, I didn't know that. Because once again, I mean, you know, he he's still kind of pure to his original form. But, you know, there's been a bit of an evolution of him, of course. Prior to Alien, elongated kind of um, shape of the alien's head in, in the film is what this kind of is more symbolic of. But when I was just sketching in the 80s, before Alien, I was doing these weird kind of characters, which weren't based on anything more than a kind of almost uh, 
primitive anatomical, you know, um, you know, the anatomical guy, yeah. right? Who's ovulated circle head and, and blah, blah, blah. So in a way, because I didn't have formal training and I wasn't really an artist, when I first started doing all those things in the early 80s, sketches, drawings, characters, it was all based on that kind of how to draw stuff. Okay. Coming from the oval head and whatever. So, and then and at you know, a certain point in the later 80s and the early 90s, you saw Alien. Yeah, it got different, right? It got more pointed. And I, and I don't know if the point man, he's not like he's pointing, right? Mm -hmm. I think it's the pointed head okay. that, that gave it its you know, name. I mean, I never called it the point man. Oh, really? Okay. No, we use the point man uh, word as a reconnaissance uh, term. Like point man is oh, like, in the military. Exactly. Yeah. Like you're the guy out in front of the team, you know, and you're, uh, you know, you're really good at looking at the ground and you can tell if, you know, I mean, whatever. That's a point man. And in a way, I always saw myself as a metaphor of someone who's out there. And I've always been the point man because... I'm observant. You know, I want to share the information. I don't want people making. I don't want you falling over that thing I've tripped over. You know, stuff like that. Did you have a name for him? No, they're just folks. They're just regular. <laughs> they have regular names. You know, they're, they're, they don't have like Star Wars names or anything. After stumbling into the graffiti scene as a teenager, Futura's journey as an artist had taken him to the center of culture and around the world. Still. Financial security would elude the young father for some time. In this period in, in the mid-90s, you will go through a, a pretty, I would say, substantial shift philosophically from being just an artist to now being an entrepreneur. And you're running t-shirt business, you know, uh, a graphic design business, as well as still making fine art. How does sort of opening up that part of your brain inform you know, the the more artistic side of things? Well, uh, works well with others. So there's always going to be that mentality, like trying to do something I know, I guess, at the time I couldn't do by myself. You know, one of the things that uh, both of those companies, uh, GFS and uh, Project Dragon uh, BSF, was that we all had a really good specialty. You know, we were all good at a certain kind of task and collectively we were able to be productive together. You know, inevitably it's either like uh, obviously egos or loot that will determine how those relationships work out. And, you know, sometimes they don't work out. Right. But it's just, uh, yeah. But I mean, you know, I'm still that way. Like I'm still kind of looking at things from a, not like a curatorial level, but that's how you look at art, right? You try to put things together and make a nice, um, you know, whatever, uh, exhibition, presentation. So for me, it's always been that. And I'm always looking for other folks because I, I have operated pretty much, uh, you know, not it's not about being autonomous, but like I do a lot of everything myself, you know, and, you know, lately... You know, it's not just working with other brands or other people, but my, our own team has become a lot more um, productive. Well, it's interesting because I, I, until you said it right now, I had never really thought about this, but both in, in James Lavelle and, and in Nigo, you have patrons who grew up directly influenced by the work that you were making in the 80s. In which they both self-admittedly stated, you know, and even recently I did a nice interview with Nigo and he's like, yeah, but when you came to Tokyo, we knew about you and GFS. We knew about you from the 80s, you know? So yeah, I mean, it's great. And that's why I'm grateful, you know, because here are people, you know, in their own ways, very much key individuals in my life uh, at, at these, even like crossroads, just like, you know, at this moment, this is when it happened. And, you know, I could be not honest about it or something, you know, or admit, like, how it really went down. But I, I can't do that. It's like I I saw it. I was there. You know, I'm not going to, you know, hide, you know, who's ever willingly gets the credit for something or not, you know. And, and, it's, and I know those people were very, like you say, they were supportive and being patrons in a sense that, like, they were investing in my work. 
it wasn't just like, oh, hey, I want to hire you to do stuff. They were also like, oh, is this painting for sale? And could I buy some of your work and stuff? So, you know, a lot of times as an artist, you feel exploited. And there's like a kind of, yeah, that was like kind of got a little bit used by that. And I've certainly had that in my life. But you don't, you don't feel that way with people that you feel relationships are built on friendship before really, you know, you're actually trying to do something creative together. Nigo and I, we just were recently in on a project I did for Human Made. You know, it's very much established that that relationship that was made almost 25, you know, I asked him like, when, you know, Nigo-san, he's like 96. So that's 25 years next year. You know, that's not bad, uh, having a friend like that. How did that design contract with Nigo, how transformative was that for your life, you know, financially? Beyond belief, because once again, it's like, yeah, I had an annual contract, X amount of dollars, but quite generous in a sense of where I was at that time in my life and having never had that before, ever. You know, like once again, the arrangement with Agnes was beautiful and, pen, you know, pending on paintings I may, would make and could possibly sell to her, I guess, but it's not like you're getting X amount of dollars every month over a 24-month period. So there, there's some security finally for my life, which is why, like I was saying before, like we, me and my son, you know, we laughed at the times prior to, let's say, that era, which by then his sister would have been uh, maybe six or something, you know. So by then we were like, wow, okay, you know, like, can we go to Baby Gap? Yeah, I guess we can. Something like that, you know. So it was transformative, sure, because it just meant like I just had more money to spend, you know, like basically and to support my family. And that was fantastic because it was also like, damn, you know, like my life has always been about these other people coming to my aid, well, obviously in the sense of James from UK, the Clash thing, all the European support of the 80s and all the art they bought. Uh, other trips I'd taken to Japan, uh, friends I had in Hong Kong, always Asia, Europe, never really America, you know, which is why you know, last year was awesome. I mean, my project with the Mets was like a lifelong, what are you kidding me? It's like. But, but, and, and more recently, Funko, which is being sold at Target shops in America. It's like they introduced my product to, you know, so this is amazing for me, just if anything. And like, finally, I get some little bit of light at home. Yeah, I'm really in the moment right now. I'm like, yeah, I just want to do, just want to get into my painting again, which I, like we were saying, it's like, it's not just being the most lucrative, but it's also something I want to put away for the, for the family and the legacy now. In the 2000s, Futura's work would rekindle its 80s fame and then go far beyond. Embracing the advent of the brand collaboration, Futura would partner with blue chip companies like Supreme, Hennessy, Levi's, BMW, The Weeknd, Uniqlo, G-Shock, and the New York Mets. Together, they would change the perception of said household brand and in doing so, put Futura's brand in more than a few households. that you were doing in conjunction with Nigo and that Mirakami was doing in Cause and all. It, there was a scene that, you know, to your point, really created the architecture of which, frankly, all of pop culture now is built upon. Yes. Um, one of the most instrumental tools of that movement in that moment was collaboration. Mm. How do you think about, how do you approach philosophically each of your collaborations? Well, now it's at a point where, at least for me, it's, it's back to, you know, both sides of the fence. For me, there's like the Futura Laboratories one, where it's kind of just the branding of FL as a design company. Like, what do you do? You produce stuff, you make garments, tour, whatever, whatever FL may be part of. And then there's a Futura side also, which could mean maybe more painterly, you know, I'm trying to divide them like visually what those two things are. But I mean, for me, it's really like, and Levi's is an amazing one. And, you know, I, I don't look at the Mets as a real collaboration necessarily. It was just an event. With, you got the point man in the Mets I did get cap. The point that's, man. that's pretty amazing. I, I did, no, no, amazing. But, you know, in, in the pure sense of it, I mean, like, you know, in a, 
like I, I, I mentioned Levi's because I was saying before, like just on some being from America and getting recognition from, from your country, that, you know, there was a real great moment for me to brand with, uh, you know, an American company and just get recognized by the culture on that level, you know, on a very high level as well. So that was great and made me feel great, of course. But um, the BMW thing is just like next level for me. And, you know, that that's really a reason too to like, all right, that's kind of it. I think you've done it as far as whatever. That collaboration. But it's the, like the, a tag on the wall, you know, because it's like, to me, it's all marketing, I guess, advertising. You know, it, it, it's still about visibility on some level. And of course, when you're branding with another company, well, then you're embracing their market and their following and whatever their, whoever their guys are, and they're getting my guys in the process. I actually had a great relationship with Levi's years, years, years ago through Levi's Japan on a project I did before the recent stuff we've done. So I already was touching the company, even though it was like Levi's Japan, not Levi's San Francisco. But that kind of branding, you know, uh, Supreme Tea, recent me painting their new store on Bowery, like this kind of brand collaboration. Well, it's just market. It's really just marketing. And it's, it's kind of just using each other's audience to sell something. You know, the last 20 years of your career have been a very, like, slow and steady, you know, uh, rise. For at least from the outside looking in, it's sure. felt as, as though, um, you know, you have continued to do what you do. And the zeitgeist has sort of moved closer and closer and closer and closer and aligned. It's damn near almost aligned. I mean, because I guess I am ahead of my time in a way. My, like, I don't know if it's my, my, my thought processing or whatever it is, my vision or something, but I'm feeling now like, yeah, I'm, I'm in a good moment, of course, in my own career, but so is the whole movement. You know, everything is there as well. And like you were saying before, whereas even the kids who are 40, like Virgil, you know, the people who are born in 80 who were young, very, you know, influential, if you will, uh, or ready to be influenced 20-somethings are there in positions of power. And, and, and that just keeps, you know, that, that cycle just keeps turning over. You know, there's always like new, I mean, there's a world of new collectors right now who are buying art. You know, uh, a lot of it is an Asian market, certainly. They had the buying power. But there's a lot of young people buying art, you know, that you wouldn't expect. Like, it's not... I mean, for me, we're we're also looking now at like it's not just buying art because you know people. That's the other thing. It's like just because you want the painting doesn't mean it's either for sale or I'm trying to sell it. You know what I mean? That that's been the other thing where it's like not that I've been stingy with my own work, but that that lull in my career I was always happy about because I always felt like yeah I don't really want to if I could find other means to support myself and make money I would prefer to do that maybe than make art, right? That's where I was. Because I also didn't want to, one, cheapen it in any way, nor two, uh, just work on command, you know, because it was a potential, you know, margin. Like, yeah, paint. You know, they don't want to do that. You know, I, I kind of need an environment. I need a place to do that in. I need a good relationship. You know, all these things have to be right for me. You know, I can't just, like, do it. Although I can do it. But then it's not going to be, you know, it's not going to be what it should be. So, you know, I've learned all those lessons about how I, I work and what I'm trying to do. But right now, I'm really trying to just get through a body of work, get, uh, you know, get some shows lined up. The one I mentioned in Tokyo, I may do something in New York, which I think is important. You're, you know, you're, you're now in your mid-60s and you've accomplished so many things over so many different eras. Are there any creative white whales out there that you still, they're scratching, it's just you're trying to scratch or? Well, I mean, no, there aren't, right? I mean, uh, but that's not to say that there's not something out there that you know, I have no idea about, you know, like how a lot of these things in my life have just kind of arrived, you know, and, you know, organic is an overused expression, but I think it applies here, you know, originality, you know, and, and handling how uh, my my future is determined as best I can 
you know, it's, it's not like, you know, hey, I've invested a lot in Apple. Love to work with Apple. Let's put on the record, no doubt. But, you know, not like necessarily pursuing anything per se. Like, man, I really want to do this thing with this company or these people. You know, I still, although my visibility is, is shot up a lot, you know, I want to stay under the radar somewhat, you know, and if you really want me, you can find me. You know, I, I get DMs all the time from from friend, uh, fans and clients alike, you know. Uh, so whatever, you know, we'll see what happens. But I'm, no, no, there's not. I mean, I'm just to say I'm pretty happy with where I'm at. And, you know, I don't want to wish for anything that's, you know, not not there. And, you know, thanks for letting me talk because, you know, I I do like to represent my sto- my own story. But once again, like not just from a participant in this culture for 50 years, let's say, but as an observer of it and, you know, seen a lot of what had happened along the way and some good, some bad, but mostly really good because we are here and the culture is in a good place with a lot of tremendous artists, you know, uh, like a lot more females and, you know, just the whole story, you know, is very inclusive. Thanks for tuning into this episode of Idea Generation featuring Futura. We hope this episode showed you how to manage the delicate balance between staying the course despite the constant shifts in culture and being open to change. Futura has always had a crystal clear vision for his brand, but when the chips were down, he maintained being open to adaptation, especially if it kept his brand moving forward. And speaking of moving forward, thanks to our partners at Shopify for making this and all our podcasts possible. Check out their services at shopify.com ideas.